Today's tale is called The Run. Across the road from me lives a woman who goes running four times every day. I don't know her at all, but I wonder what is going through her head when she is running. The Run I run because my body is my temple. I run because life's rich pageant also runs. I run to get fit, to stay fit, to get fitter. I run because the gym is closed. I run because it takes 42 minutes and 23 seconds according to my Fitbit, and that's 42 minutes and 23 seconds less of the day to worry about. I run because it's hell and I deserve to suffer. I run because it can be exhilarating and I deserve to thrive. I run to have something to talk about. I run to get away from my husband and the children. I run to feel the sun or the wind or the rain on my body, reminding me that I'm alive and that I'm still alive. I run to nurture the thoughts and to stifle the thoughts, to manage them somehow, to discipline them. I run as well to empty my mind, to reach for the great zen that is never there, the peace inside that never comes, the liberation that always disappoints. I run to stop myself from screaming. I run because it always begins as a fabulous escape and always ends as I'm taken back into custody. I run because there are moments, flashes, fleeting glimpses of what it would feel like not to be me. I run to get to know myself better. I run to empty out the excess of myself. I run because I'm too fat. I run because I want to stay slim and beautiful. I run to feel superior to the staggering, sagging, gasping people I pass. I run to feel awe at the streamlined, fleet-footed athletes who pass me. I run four times a day now. One, then two, then three, now four. I run because I'm obsessive, addicted, intoxicated. I run because I'm told to run less. I tell myself to run more. I run because it's running away. I run because moving is at least better than standing still. I run to use myself up. I run to daydream. I run because there's nothing else to do. I run because I hate my life. I hate my life. I run because I run, and so I run. I just run. It's always the same routine. Possibly this is inflexible and nonsensical, but I always run the same way. Up the hill, across the road, further up the hill, into the park by the palace gates, and up the next hill, round to the right and further up, past the go-ape treetop adventure, past the boating lake, past the skateboard ramps and the eternally changing, officially sanctioned graffiti wall, and out of the park again, briefly. Down the hill to another entrance to the park, in and then sharp right, up a small rise to the rhododendron copse, then up again to the café with the absurd opening hours, past the too-cool preschool club that my children hated, over the footbridge and down onto the disused railway land that is anything but disused, except by trains. Scrunch the gravel and into the tunnel under the road, out into the bright light and the trees, and then the great vista of London town to the left, back into the trees, past the tyre swing, and up a slight incline, under another road and up to the entrance to the woods. There's always a queue here, and a tangle of dogs, bikes and prams. Park rage, woods rage, bike, dog and pram rage. Let me through, let me through. Into the forest, ancient, deciduous, mysterious. Veer right, up the path, past the benches, and down into a hollow. Steeply up and out of the hollow and gently down to the cricket nets. Thwack! And the exercise equipment and the pointless mini boardwalk. 
skirt around the open green field, another café, the cricket crease, the picnics, the dogs leaping for frisbees, except in downpour, except in thunder and lightning, when I am alone and the world is only for me. And I am told, instructed, admonished, do not go running in this weather, do not go out in the soaking rain, you will catch your death, and worse, you will set people talking, and what will they think of you, of us, of me, what will they think? As if people think. Back into the trees and past the children's playground and the children's toilets. Hang a left, then a right, and then another left, and you're on the way back to the entrance to the woods where you came in. But first, there is Hansel and Gretel's house, nestled there, all fairy tale fearful, where you've never seen anyone come or go, but the window boxes are perfect. Now you're retracing your steps, noticing different aspects of the route, its people, its animals, and its every undulation and you hurtle out onto the road that leads up to the boating lake, and you count the trees on the road, eight, then a road to the left, then another four, and the pillar box, and up to the last of all rises, to the level of the skateboard ramps, and from here on it's gravity that will take you home. All the pressure on the knees as you go down past the go-ape treetop adventure, and you exit the park, and you tumble in your mind, you snowball down, you spin and you roll and you gather no moss. Here it is, your door. In you go. In you go. What's keeping you? Second run of the day. The mind is keen, but the body is grudging. The kids are having screen time. When I run, they have their iPads out. He doesn't approve, but then he's on Teams, or Zoom, or Cloudroom. He's half man, half laptop. They didn't warn us about this. Some relationships can only survive because of absence. Now there is hyper-communication with the world, but the small kernel of intimacy at home is crushed by overexposure. He talks to the MacBook Air and reserves the silence for us. Silence punctuated by shards of critical observation about my parenting skills, about what I have neglected, about the way the kids are dressed or do their hair or know nothing about compound interest. We implement domestic distance in response, the kids to their rooms and I to my running, here I am again, just you, try and stop me. In through the palace gates, and I scan the park for fantasy alternative husbands. There are so many. There, near the boating lake, sitting on a bench reading a book. An intellectual. I can't see what he's reading, so I'll make it French poetry. We read to each other in bed, after he has prepared exquisite nouvelle cuisine, and then we make soft featherlight love and watch the stars come out. Or there, doing press-ups by the cafe that's never open when you want it, the man with the perfect body. He's modest, though, kind and gentle. When he takes me in his arms, he whispers about his adventures in the highland of Scotland and Patagonia and the Hindu Kush. We're buying a small cabin on the Isle of Lewis, where we will sit out the rest of the pandemic before sailing around the world in a yacht that we've made out of driftwood. Or there, perhaps, strolling purposefully through the ancient forest with his young sons, who will make friends with my young daughters, my soulmate. He would die for me. He writes me passionate letters of longing, and I afford him the occasional liberty, a kiss on the nape of my neck, a flower placed gracefully in my cleavage. I lead him on, I test his resolve, and then we escape in broad daylight, carefully packing the car, while my husband boasts about Gantt charts and quality improvement initiatives. But no matter how many men I gather in my parallel universe, no matter how crowded it gets, by the time I reach the cricket nets I start to apologise to my girls. 
I am sorry for so many things. I am sorry for the absence of your future. I am sorry for the emptiness of your present. I am sorry for your friends, sorry for your school, sorry for the plans we made, sorry for the time lost and the time never spent. The damage, I tell myself, is only mild, relatively mild. Some cutting, yes, but then, what young girl doesn't cut these days? On Amy's forearms, little scratches, like the cracked surface of cooled lava. And one, no two, half-hearted overdoses. Rosie in the hospital bed, promising never to, never to ever again, with only one lapse. We believe her, for now. We settle for this pain, this hurt. After all, Rosie's best friend jumped from Beachy Head, and Amy's first boyfriend drove his motorbike into the central reservation on the M1. Scarring and death, it's just the background music of their lives. Though understanding this does not prevent the slow burn of their anger. For me, it is merely a sneering contempt. For their father, it is outright loathing. Is this a triumph of mine? Some days, I confess, I'll take it as such as I run. Past the children's playground, all those mothers, one or two fathers, oblivious, I suppose, to the coming years of trauma, wanting always to hear the last lovely laughing day when their eyes were loud with confidence and love. I'll let that little sorrow resound as I turn the corner for the journey home. Halfway and so little resolved, halfway and not even a beginning of an end to this turmoil, thoughts flickering, thoughts battering, choking on thoughts, weeping with thoughts. The second run is always clogged with thinking. If only I could open my head and scatter them out, leave them strewn on the paths, on the grass and on the roads, to open the top of my skull like the lid of a teapot, no, like the lid of a funeral urn, and to empty out the charred remains, to let the wind carry it all, dissolve and disperse, all my useless rumination utterly cremated. I should never have stopped working. The gallery was my pride and joy. I excelled. It was acknowledged that I excelled. Yes, it was the privileged tax-avoiding sham philanthropy of a bank, but the collection, you see, the collection was a wonder, and I, graduate high with entitlement, charmed my way to be its curator. This will stand you in good stead, they said. This will really put you in the window. The window? Yes, hush now and work. And so I worked. And I loved it. I loved the artists, I loved the paintings, but oh, too soon, yes, I was windowed, and I ignored the voices, I ignored them all, raging and billowing and imploring inside me. I fell, tripped by flattery, floundered by delusion, and shackled finally by cowardice, and the irresistible lie of security. In this day and age, still, wring your hands, hang your heads, and feel the icy eternity of class. I distract myself with the dogs, the world of dogs, bouncing, flouncing, chasing, retrieving, slobbering, biting, fighting, shitting, shagging, jumping. Such happiness, such joie de vivre. Their owners glow with pride. They are always shouting at them. The woods echo with the barking of people, barking at the wonderful, infantile obedience of dogs. Dogs will do anything for their idiot owners, as long as their tiny attention span holds. We don't have dogs. We have cats. Cats who have all the cunning and skill to unleash the revolution and topple us from our perch. What they lack, alas, is the will to organise. Their disdain for each other matches their scorn for us, too flawed by selfishness to join forces. What a waste, though we adore them, the lazy sadists. They bear a cruelty akin to our own. 
I look to my right at the famous view of London. Is it redundant now? Are all cities superfluous to requirements? I am struck by how little London I have done, even before the great confinement. How did the boundaries of my movement contract? How did my daily world shrink to a small medieval fiefdom? But at least I can run through it. Every muscle, bone and sinew knows this route. My body needs no guidance from my brain, and as my brain whirs and shrieks inside my head, my autopilot glides, though my age is telling me my joints are wearing and tearing. Time, in this era of epidemiology, is viscous as a glacier. But still, my body is eating time as I exercise my way toward oblivion. The girls will still be on their screens when I get back, frantically communicating their deep unhappiness to their strange, unstable friends. I must find a better way of loving them. They reject my worry with the power of their own anxieties. They will not be refused, admonished, praised, admired or adored by me. All I can do is listen. All I can do is resolve to be there as I practice my loving avoidance in this run. Across the footbridge, past the nasty nursery, past the sad café, which is now open for no earthly reason, and up the final hill, up, up, and my lungs are heaving with incline, and then at the top I collapse into pure descent. I'm a boomerang, flung out to return. Here's the door. What turbulent chaos awaits? Third run. Look, they're only 42 minutes and 23 seconds each. That's less than three hours in total. I mean, I used to spend that much time in the gym, eating superfoods, performing pilates, swimming, gymming, sipping soya lattes, and in between bites of kale and sunflower seeds, I'd share in the casual verbal assassination of whoever wasn't in that day. Such friends, such close friends. We doused each other daily with the acid of our desperation. Well, no more. Thank you, virus. Thank you for saving me from my friends. In through the palace gates... This is the numb run. This is where I get to touch the great absence. Well, almost. Yes, my limbs are getting a little of that deep bone ache. Yes, my plantar muscle is objecting, and the small meniscal tear on my right knee lets out a portent of future doom. My left ankle is sending me a throbbing pain from where I strained the ligaments when I fell in the hollow, avoiding a small child who had run in front of me. But all of this is minor musculoskeletal inconvenience, compared to the cardiovascular porn-star perfection of my heart and lungs. I can't quite tell any more whether the sweat-drenched fist-in-the-chest exhilaration is masochism or genuine ecstasy. But now the landscape is just peripheral vision. I am entering the zone, stepping out of myself, taking up a position of dreamy distance. And it starts to rain. Even better. Sweet waters of the air. Come drench me. Come quench me. I'm cooled. I'm bathed. I'm washed clean running on the wet earth, running in the cold wood, running on the damp ground, running on the diamond-studded grass, through the waterfall willows and the great soaking beaches. And downpour is the only sound now, its rhythmic plashing drumming me forward. There are no people here. They are all banished. They have obeyed the curfew of the rains and left me to float, buoyed by the current, round my circuit. No old couples side by side, avoiding each other's eyes, regretting every decision that has led them here. No young boys playing football to distract them from the viciousness of life. No mothers pushing high-tech buggies while talking on their mobiles to the people they think are their friends. No Eastern European men sitting in huddles trying to remember why they came to London. 
No beautiful people, no ugly people, no people providing evidence of the nation's obesity problem, no scantily clad sexy young things, no gangs of youths brandishing knives, no veiled Muslim women laughing softly, no fast-paced businessmen closing deals remotely, no neighbours, no strangers, no winners, no losers, no runners, just me, the only survivor of the sweet apocalypse, delivered home too soon, reverie shattered. The fourth and final run, you're never bloody here. What about your family? What about the people who depend upon you? What about your duties? What about your daughters? What about me? The voice raised, the fist on the table, the threatening step forward, the tone of outrage, the tone of fury, the tone of bitter, bitter disappointment. Well, yes, all those things must be considered. I will consider them. Here I am. I am considering them. Don't just leave while I'm talking to you. Don't just walk out on me. Don't be so childish. Don't be so selfish. Don't, don't. Don't go running. I'm telling you, I'm telling you now, do not go running. But the door has closed. My feet have hit the road. I am gone. The sun is out. The sky is blue. The monsoon is over. And here comes everybody. Lovely young women, their fresh voices carried on the breeze. Handsome young men, their shy glasses darting. Happy, wise old people, quiet, kind millennials. The hill is a mosaic of black, brown and white. There is no conflict in this world. For a moment, for a brief, delicate moment, we are equal. Blink back the disbelief. We made our gesture, the girls and I. We climbed the hill and took the knee. What knees there were! The people of our parish, taking time out to condemn injustice, then standing again, in the full knowledge that black lives matter, they really do, somewhere, far away. But today, on the fourth run, All's well with the world, and the feeling lasts through the park and along the disused railway line, into the woods and down to the hollow. That damn hollow, because this is where the doubt starts. This is where the beautiful vision begins to disintegrate. I know myself for what I am, a mad woman running, running because she cannot cope with her life, running because she will not stop and contemplate the full details of catastrophe, running past the people who may well share her fears, but with whom she will not communicate. Running, walking, sitting, there we are, all of us, life's rotten parade. I am pushing my body to its limits. I have lost that fine sense of tuning, that dialogue with my physical frame that will warn me when I am being foolish. I am subjecting myself to violent overuse. I deny the truth, I press on, and everything around me begins to shatter. I am running now through a world of fragments, memories, aspirations, terrors and threats. That's all we have. That's all any of these atomized fellow humans have. And I don't want to complete the fourth run now. I want to reach that turning and instead of running home, to run on, to run into another world, a better place, a kinder place, to keep running, to keep running forever. But my body takes the turn and my mind runs with it and before the next thought can land, I have passed the grizzly nursery and the cafe that is firmly closed, and the boating lake, and the go-ape treetop adventure, and the palace gates, and I stand unmoving before my own unavoidable, forbidding home. I turn the key in the lock, and I go inside, inside to begin my apology, an apology I know that can never end. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the tale, please share.